You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. I'm Finbar Birmingham, the Europe correspondent at the South China Morning Post. A big week at home and abroad for China's political movers and shakers. The National People's Congress has just come to an end. This is the biggest week in the calendar every year for Beijing. Bureaucrats fly in from all over China to say yay or nay, well, mostly just yay really, to rough plans for the year ahead. Kinling Lo, once of this parish but now toughing it out in a quarantine room in the Chinese capital ahead of starting her new gig as a Beijing reporter, along with the excellent Mai Jun, watched all of the events unfold so you didn't have to. We get some of the details on policy and even more of the palace intrigue that surrounds a massive event like this from the guys in part two. In the first half of the show, political economy editors John Carter and Joe Shin will talk about a raft of foreign engagements this week. An SCMP scoop the other day revealed that China's top two diplomats were planning to meet their US counterparts in Alaska for the first senior bilateral meeting of the Biden era. That's going ahead next week. Meanwhile, Biden himself is meeting with the Quad, a group of nations made up of the US, Japan, Australia, India, more than a few bugbears with Beijing between them. Is this a worry for China? Stay tuned, you're about to find out. It's Friday afternoon in Hong Kong. I'm joined by political economy editors at the SEMP, Joe Shin and John Carter. I'm going to talk about a few items today, the first of which is the United States and China to convene in Alaska the first item of which is a summit between the United States and China in Alaska next week. This will be the first official meeting between senior leaders of the US and China since the Biden election, since the inauguration. We're going to have Yang Jiechi and Wang Yi from the Chinese side. Anthony Blinken and Jake Sullivan from the United States side, and this is going to be next Thursday. Uh, Jushin, tell us a little bit about how this came about from the Chinese perspective and what is in the calculation of holding this meeting at this time. Okay, I think uh, after the first phone call between uh, President Xi Jinping and uh, Biden and the US President Biden, I think both uh, um, the Chinese side and the US side are seeking kind of opportunity to, to at least to, like, to talk to each other, to lay the ground. So, from the Chinese perspective, it, this is a this is a summit, strategic talk, that is going to lead to many dialogues down down the road. But the U.S. side, of course, is a little bit more. Uh, as Blinken said, you know, this is not a strategic summit. You know, we decide what to do after uh, uh, the the talking, and it also already show that there are still huge differences from between Beijing and Washington over the of the of the relationship. I mean, what's the best scenario, of course, uh, is uh, for China's perspective is that after this meeting, there will be more uh, regular contacts, you know, uh, so the, the, the channels can be rebuilt up and there will be more talking down the way. But for the, the worst scenario for the Chinese government is like uh, the one in Hawaii, remember? In yeah. last, day, last of July. Pompeo. Yes, in, between Pompeo and Yang Jitsu, you know, the Yang Jitsu fly half the planet to, 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 to Hawaii and sit down for seven hours uh, just to exchange words with, uh, with the U.S. counterparts and have nothing basically agreed upon. Mm. Just uh, each side just uh, talking about their own talking point and after mm. that they just uh, stand up and go back home. So, so on that point, Joshin, do you think that the U.S. has said that they want this to be a sort of a goals or results-oriented uh, meeting. China says they want it to be a strategic dialogue, which is 
essentially suggests, I suppose, that China wants more and more follow-ups. If there was to be a result from this meeting, what would that successful result be for China? Well, I think China has made it very clear that China has no ground to give on certain issues, including South China Sea, including Xinjiang, including Hong Kong, including Taiwan. But I think China will have something to give to the U.S. side, for instance, climate change and other areas, that there will be some areas that could have some cooperation between uh, Beijing and Washington. But nobody really knows. I mean, yeah. to what to what extent China will, uh, you know, what's the final card actually uh, China have is, it, it remains unknown. And also, it depends what kind of, what the United States can offer in return to, mm-hmm. to, to Beijing. Yeah. So it's, uh, at this moment, we really don't know. We have to read very carefully about the statements from both sides to see how the, how the you know, the dialogue actually uh, uh, go on. Yeah, John, um, you know, what What do you think will be the hot topics from the United States? What do you think the United States will be, I suppose, in an ideal world, what would they hope to achieve? And what do you think is realistic to expect uh, from this first meeting between the new administration and Chinese counterparts? Well, this is a, f- a feeling out meeting between the two sides. Remember, this, Biden has been in office less than two months. I mean, this is all new. And, and Biden has made it clear that we're that they are going through a, a major review of their um, strategic plan vis-a-vis China. And so from the U.S. point of view, this is as much about gathering information about where China uh, may be willing to be flexible and where it won't be flexible. Um, um, Blinken, the U.S. Uh, Secretary of State, and Jake Sullivan, the uh, National Security Advisor have previously written a number of articles about the need to manage the relationship with China. And so this is all about managing. Um, The U.S. uh, may uh, be willing to discuss possibilities that climate change is an obvious possibility, even potentially a cooperation on uh, uh, fighting coronavirus. Mm. We'll see. I mean, coronavirus remains a relatively controversial issue uh, uh, given the uh, WHO's investigation in China. Uh, but nevertheless, there is potential there. On other issues, as Joshin has, uh, has made clear, uh, China has drawn lines in the sand, red lines, do not cross, mm. uh, or you know, this will severely damage the relationship. So is that, does that mean that if the United States raises the issues of Hong Kong, Xinjiang, uh, 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 you know, is that something that China will not even be open to discussing, Joshin, do you think? Or is it something that there would be some well, room, room for at least a... If I could jump in and say yes. that uh, uh, Blinken has warned yesterday that China needs to brace itself to hear the U.S. strong views on these topics, Xinjiang and Taiwan and mm-hmm. Hong Kong. Uh, so it will be discussed. Um, and I, I don't think the U.S. position is going to be any surprise to Beijing. No, but then again, you're going to end up in that situation with a replica of the Hawaii meeting, Joshin, if there's you know, no room for maneuver, if Beijing has already said these are not up for, up for discussion. Well, as John said, I, mean, I think the US side will definitely raise these issues. Mm. Otherwise, there were no point of yes. meeting these uh, top Chinese yeah. diplomats. On the other hand, from the China perspective, I mean, Yang Jiechen and Wang Yi will try very hard to explain why Beijing is doing this and what will possibly be the next step for, for, from the Chinese government and to see what kind of uh, specific concerns the, the United States have and what kind of possibly, you know, these kind of um, tactical 
I, I, I don't want to use this word of compromises, but actually like what kind of tactics, steps mm -hmm. that China can take you know, so that uh, the, the, the United States can be less concerned mm -hmm. about these issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if you look at, I mean, Hong Kong, for instance, the electoral reform uh, from the Western perspective view, it's uh, killing the one country, two systems. But from the Chinese perspective, you know, th this, this electoral system is still very, very different from mainland China. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, it's still, this, this, is, a, this is a more lean towards so-called the you know the the the, the real uh, election system than the than the MPC or the CPP system uh, in in mainland China. So, mm. from the Chinese government, what it is doing is to safeguard China's sovereignty. Of course, these these kind of argument, what Beijing is trying to say is will, will be very difficult for the United States to accept. But at least, I mean, uh, for Yang Jiechi and Wang Yi, they can lay lay out these kind of uh, uh, rationals, the, the considerations behind these moves, and to see if there's there could be some, uh, uh, you know, some small understanding. At least, you know, I mean, I mean, not to because of the Hong Kong issue, going to a going to a, a, a state where you know we are talking, you're talking about like uh, massive uh, sanctions of all MPC. Lawmakers mm -hmm. or kicking China out of the U.S. dollar system as a as a, as a punishment, you know, the Russia model of financial sanctions. These things that they can possibly talk about, like how to avoid these things. Yes, we know there are huge differences, but at least there are some things that we agree not to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we had a strong statement overnight from both the United States and the European Union uh, after the NPC confirmed the changes to the Hong Kong electoral uh, system or the reform, but no concrete action, no further concrete action as yet uh, watch this space. John, at the same time, the, the, the United States is embarking of a bit of, on a bit of a flurry of diplomatic activity in the region. Uh, Biden himself will meet with leaders from the Quad Nations, which is Japan, Australia and India. Again, uh, showing perhaps that the Biden administration is a bit more multilaterally engaged than its predecessors. What is the Quad? What do we expect from this? Why is it important? And should China have any concerns about that? Well, the Quad has been around for years, but uh, it, it, under Trump, it, it languished. Uh, and now Biden is seeking to uh, re reinvigorate it, uh, frankly, as a way to contain China. It has been described in some circles as a potential mini NATO, but that's going too far. It's an effort to cooperate on various levels. Obviously, um, military issues are a major um, area of discussion that will come up in the meetings later today. Um, uh, but also there are other issues. Um, for instance, the uh, cooperation on vaccine production, mm -hmm. uh, attempts perhaps to have India ramp up its vaccine production in order to distribute it to developing countries, something that China has done very successfully mm. in recent weeks, uh, so-called uh, vaccine diplomacy. Um, so there are a lot to talk about. Uh, but given shared concerns about China, uh, the group has gone closer. I mean, we know about the border conflict between India and China. We know about the trade disagreements between Australia and China. We know about the East China Sea Islands dispute between mm -hmm. Japan and China. Mm -hmm. And of course, we know about the U.S.-China disagreements. And so each of the four Quad countries has reasons to cooperate vis-a-vis -vis policy with China. Mm -hmm. And again, this is part of Biden's efforts to seek multilateral engagement in order to address 
issues with China. Yeah. And so the, those are, uh, as you said, John, each of those countries has a sort of litany of issues and, and complaints with China. To see them all come together in one forum, uh, Joshin, is that something that maybe Beijing would, would not want to see? Or is it a worry? Well, I think for Beijing, uh, certainly this is a worry. I mean, if there's an Asia version of NATO against China, this is a, this is definitely not what Beijing wants to see. But at the same time, Beijing also sees very clearly that it's uh, there was uh, there was a huge like gaps even between uh, the U.S. and its allies. So China has huge room to uh, you know to manage this. Mm. For instance, uh, South Korea. I mean, at the same time, you know, South Korea is a military ally of the United States, but at the same time, you know, the economic and the trade relationship with China was huge. So China can use this, you know, to 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 counterbalance the uh, mm-hmm. counterbalance the push. And even for Australia, I mean, we have talked a lot about why Beijing was so tough, uh, you know, against Australia in the, in terms of trade, because China wants to, uh, you know, set the example. Mm. You know, you can't go too far. You know, you can't be too seeing as, you know, uh, completely on behalf of the United States and do something to uh, harm China's interests. And even for Japan, I think this is, this is still, uh, you know, really Japan will be go so far as to uh, enjoy kind of military alliance clearly that is targeting, targeting uh, 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 China. I think there are some, uh, you know, the jury is still, still out. And even India, Although there is, a, as as John mentioned, there is mm-hmm. a huge, you know, this uh, uh, nationalistic um, push at home for for Modi after this uh, uh, border clash. But still, you know, Modi has managed to de-escalate the yeah. situation on the border. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a this is a this is a this is a situation that it, that I see, you know, not all the all the. Uh, on the members of the court are on the same page yet. Mm. So, for the for for this situation, I think Beijing also sees very clearly. Of course, what they will do in the future will also be dependent, uh, you know, depend on what Beijing will do. For instance, if Beijing escalate the uh, the tensions on the border with India, maybe India, Beijing will push India more close to the to the mm-hmm. to the US side. But if, like, for the BRICS summit you know, this year, and she was likely to visit India. Or, or not at least there's a there's a video conference and they both sides are talking about friendship about trade about cooperation and maybe the tensions will be much uh, smaller mm-hmm. uh, from 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 uh, from now so this is uh, what I see the situation and, and Joshin brings up a good point that uh, on the one hand India is in the quad with the United States Australia and Japan on the other hand it's in bricks with China yeah. Uh, on the one hand, Australia and Japan are at odds in certain ways with China. On the other hand, they're part of the RCEP trade agreement. Regional Comprehensive, Comprehensive Economic <laughs> Partnership. Yes. <laughs> yes. And these, these days, seriously, I mean, uh, you know, the, the military conflict is kind of like in no one's uh, interest. So, sure, so, sure. so even in, in competition, it's mo- more about like economic power, about technology rather than, you know, actually <laughs> exchanging yeah. fires on the scene. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think everybody yes. wants to have their cake and eat it with China. Um, you know, they want to be able to trade and transact and do business with China. And at the same time, there's more pressure for each country uh, domestically to, to be tough rhetorically on China. And I think we're going to see over the coming years, smaller countries are now falling into this situation where they're looking at Australia as perhaps a cautionary tale. Um, you know, it's a very populist issue on the, on the um, you know, the polling stoop. Um, so I think, John, we might see uh, this dilemma facing a broader suite of nations over the next few years. Well, and, and China understands this, that its domestic market is so big, everyone wants to be a part of it. 
And so it can do what it uh, up to a point what it wants to do without fear of alienating uh, com- companies and individuals from other nations to the point where they don't want to be part of the Chinese mm. market. And so this is what's driving or one of the main drivers of Chinese policy at this point is to reinforce its domestic means of production uh, because it knows that the external environment is getting um, yeah. more, more uh, difficult. Um, and, but in doing so, it's relying on its own huge domestic market, uh, which has a huge amount of potential. Yeah. One quick point I'd say uh, that sort of illustrated to me this week um, how sort of the needle has has moved um, was the Federation of German uh, Industries, which is BDI, the huge uh, business lobby in Germany, you know, which is the European nation which trades the most with China, which is heavily reliant on China and which has been seen to be the nation to have pushed the investment treaty with China, came out with an in, in, extremely critical statement of um, China's MPC, um, the results of the MPC yesterday, um, saying that obviously this is a, a shift in the economy that they don't want to see, not towards global cooperation. And also, this was the surprising bit to me, a very political critique of the situation in Hong Kong and Xinjiang. And I thought, well, if the German, the Federation of German Businesses is saying this, probably the most pro-China lobby in Europe, what does that say for, for, for how things really are? I thought that was a bit of a surprising one. Well, in, well there's, there's rhetoric and there's action. I mean, is the BDI just paying lip service to these principles, which are widely held by the German people? I mean, they... The issue of genocide, uh, it, it rings very true to the Germans, of course, because they, uh, uh, the Nazi Holocaust back, mm. uh, back in uh, the 1940s. Uh, and so it's not surprising at all that the BDI would object to certain things that, uh, about China. But mm-hmm. having said that, is that going to affect the way they do business with China? That's mm. the key. Possibly not. The surprising thing for me, I suppose, was the fact that they went out of their, they weren't asked for this statement. They volunteered it and sent it to me. And, and I thought, wow, okay. Very interesting. But just to finish up quickly before we go, um, John, this week we saw Chinese trade data combined for the month of January and February. Record growth, uh, 60.6% growth uh, compared to the January-February uh, period last year with the massive caveat that the economy was shut down last January-February because of COVID. Right. The data was badly skewed because of this base effect. You're comparing against negative growth last year. So you got, uh, this is exports, grew by 60.6%, mm. and imports by 22.2%. Both very strong, but they were also stronger than expected, which again shows that the Chinese economy entered the new year with strong growth momentum. The trade sector is doing fine, thank you very much, despite uh, the Lunar New Year effect, despite uh, the new outbreak in northern China of the virus. So um, we'll have to see how this goes in coming months. On Monday, we get the latest data on industrial production, retail sales, and investment, and we'll see how that looks. Yeah, yeah, and also uh, as John just said, so this year was uh, was uh, was the first year of the 14th five-year plan, and in China, we don't on, not only have economic cycles but also political cycles. Yeah. So this is a this is a big year in terms of economic growth, but because lots of new projects are going to break the ground and not. Lots of new projects are going to starting this year. So, although the central Chinese government say six percent, I mean, most reasonable economists will say the minimum growth should be like eight percent or even higher. Yeah. So this year will be very, very interesting to see. I mean, 
how fast China China can grow. And given uh, consideration to the low base in uh, 2020, if there's no surprises in terms of economic growth, China is going to have a very uh, good year. Yes. Well, we look forward to following it closely. John, Jushin, thank you so much. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com slash newsletters. the end of a big week in Beijing. The National People's Congress came to a close yesterday uh, with a long press conference by Premier Li Keqiang. And I am delighted to be joined by two colleagues who followed this not just for the week, but for the week before that, they've really been immersed in all things NPC for the past fortnight. Mai Jun and Kinling Lo are reporters based in Beijing for The Post. Mai Jun, first of all, One of the things that we led with here was the reform of Hong Kong's electoral system. And I know you were watching this very closely. Um, Could you maybe set the scene for us? Like, how did this come about? Um, How does this sort of thing pass into, you know, the the, the legislative system at the NPC? And uh, what was the general, general vibe up there in Beijing? Uh, thank you, Finbar. Uh, first of all, I think uh, to begin with, I need to say that people here, uh, most people in uh, in mainland and uh, definitely in Beijing had no clue about the upcoming electoral reform that would be passed in the NPC until the very night before the opening of the NPC. So what they did is they added uh, uh, one item uh, to the agenda of the, uh, of the NPC. And that was the first time that that everybody uh, know is a, is a certain that uh, this is will, uh, this this issue will be discussed at the NPC. People in Hong Kong and the press in Hong Kong have been talking about it for weeks, and but that was because you know maybe delegates in Hong Kong are more open to talking the press and it's more they're more you know uh, transparent about what they know. But uh, people in in the mainland, most of them are, were clueless that such an important bill was going to drop on the NPC, and that was also exactly what happened last year when they decided to pass a resolution uh, to give power to the uh, NPC's standing committee to draft a law, uh, the Hong Kong National Security Law. Can I just ask you on that point, Mai Jun? So for the average person in China who maybe didn't know that it was going to be on the agenda, is this a big deal? Do they really, is it really important for them to know about the electoral reform in Hong Kong? Do they care? I think, uh, well, maybe... uh, the I think a lot of people in China began to care more about Hong Kong since the protest in 2019 because information was strictly controlled. Um, you know what they see, what uh, everything they know about the protest, or there were some uh, protesters getting violent, and some of them are you know, storming the Lechco, and some of them are storming the uh, liaison office. Uh, which is the symbol of Beijing's power. So, uh, so the discussion about Hong Kong on mainland, uh, the public discussion are actually very, very limited to this good versus evil, Beijing versus these uh, pro-independence Hong Kongers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would say that people cared about it much more last year when they uh, first understand that there was a national security law coming up. But I do not see that many people talking about it this year about the electoral before. Yeah. So at this stage, uh, it was added to the agenda. Um, give us a just really quick 30-second thumbnail sketch of what was in the reform package and 
how did it then come to pass? Uh, did, I understand they were voting on this. A bit of colour around that would be great, my June. Uh, so basically, the resolution is uh, expanding the electoral committee and also expanding the seats of the LegCo so that uh, it make it makes Beijing easier to staff the, uh, its loyalists. There's also a, uh, a vetting community that systematically uh, um, check whether whether anyone trying to register as a candidate can be considered as patriots. But I, I also need to be clear about one thing, that is the NPC delegates, uh, they were voting on a resolution that mm-hmm. uh, has maybe just some very basic details about the uh, uh, electoral form. They are not uh, voting on a very specific electoral reform plan. Uh, so the, uh, I think, I believe there is a more specific uh, electoral reform plan that will be uh, passed uh, and, and enacted by the uh, NPC uh, standing committee after the re- resolution was passed last week. This is also similar to what happened last year, but uh, it was worse last year because the NPC delegates uh, were clueless about what was in what was going to be in the national security yeah. law of Hong Kong, and but all they did was they voted on a resolution that would give power to the NPCSC to draft such a law. So mm-hmm. when when I talked to some uh, delegates about what they think about it, they were like, "Oh, it's definitely going to be a good deal." Then I asked them the details about the law. They were like, "Oh, I don't know. I haven't seen them myself." <laughs> yeah. So this so this was this a similar sort of situation, and then it went to to be voted. On and how did that go? The delegates would see a copy of the um, uh, of the resolution, and then they voted on that resolution. So that resolution was uh, passed uh, uh, yesterday with uh, only one abstention vote. Uh, I'm uh, not sure whether that surprises, uh, uh, but whether that came, I don't know whether that came as a surprise to anyone, but I think it's always technically pretty difficult for, uh, even for the National People's Congress to ensure a all yes vote. Mm. Uh, I mean, even last year uh, when there was this uh, national, when, when they voted on the resolution on the Hong Kong national security law, uh, more people vote, uh, abstained from that bill and even, and, and, if we look back further, back at a constitution amendment in 2018, uh, which was politically extremely important and basically empowered Xi Jinping to rule uh, as long as he wishes to, uh, that bill uh, was not passed on all yeses uh, 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 basis. Uh, there were a few abstention and a few uh, objections. Yeah, and so these, uh, you know, we never really get to see who it is that's abstaining, right? So these are just sort of anonymously um, voted on an electronic system, is that right? Well, exactly. Of course, I mean, everybody, everybody would try to guess who the guy is, but uh, let's be perfectly clear that the voting record is not public in China, and it's extremely difficult mm-hmm. to try to pen down who the guy is that voted uh, abstention. There is a, a red button and a green button and then a white button. So there are three buttons on the uh, on the seat of every delegates. So green means yes, uh, red means no, and white means abstain. So there is all, also there's some interesting discussion a few years ago when a delegate uh, proposed uh, switching the color uh, of uh, between red and green because uh, the delegates' argument is a lot of the lawmakers uh, sit it on the MPC are from rural places and they have a limited <laughs> level of education. And then uh, for them to actually get familiar with the concept 
uh, 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 similar to the traffic light, which is green means go, red means stop, it's actually pretty difficult. It's actually easier for those people if we change it into uh, the system in which red means yes and green means no, because uh, red in traditional Chinese culture means something good. So that means pass, go ahead, celebration, yeah. green means something else. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's fascinating to hear the, 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 the intricacies of debates like that. Kinling, I'm going to bring you in at this point because you uh, very diligently were live tweeting Li Keqiang's uh, press conference at the end of the NPC. Uh, we were all on the edge of our seats, as I imagine you also were. Give us a few highlights from that. Right. So Chinese Premier Li Keqiang, he holds a press conference at the end of the two sessions every year where he rounds up key issues that caught both domestic and international attention. Usually he addresses matters relating to China's economy, society, and foreign relations. And that's what he did as well for his press conference, which was held virtually yesterday. The highlight of these press conferences, um, usually it's on economy, because Premier Li is mainly the man who delivered the work report at the start of the two sessions, where economy is usually a big highlight for mm. foreign attention. In the press conference, he spent quite a lot of time defending China's economic outlooks and economic targets, because last year um, during the pandemic, China didn't set a GDP growth target, which was unusual. But this year, they have set quite a big target to be over 6%. And some, I guess, regional watches think it's like a slowing down. It's a proof of slowing down of Chinese economy. But he spent, I think, at least 10 minutes defending how China's economy needs to grow like sustainably and at a steady pace. So Premier Li actually used quite a, a brilliant tone to say that 6% is really not that low. So that was obviously the main focus of the presser. And there were also parts on where he defended, like Majin just said, like the Hong Kong part, like electoral change and like Hong Kong and Taiwan, like he made some repetitive comments, but that China would really like to stress, even if it was repetitive, because I mean, especially on Hong Kong, Beijing government has been facing a lot of international pressure on their tightened grip of rule. So that would be one of the things that they really want to address to the press. But I thought there was another highlight, uh, which was interesting, was that he took the second question in the press conference. And, and um, just to add a note that the, the sequencing of questions and the media that he chose to answer from is watching point because these kind of press conferences from held by the Chinese government is highly designed and well-staged, they would carefully handpick the certain journalists from certain media mm -hmm. to ask a very specific question that they already know beforehand before they take it uh, at the press conference. So we can analyze from the, the sequence of the questions and the topics on what kind of message China is trying to show. So for the second question that Li Keqiang took, it was from foreign media and it was on whether or not China is willing to give the World Health Organization investigation team that is looking into origins of coronavirus, whether China is willing to provide data of patient cases that carry some coronavirus symptoms back in October to December in 2019. Mm -hmm. um, that is because that there's this whole controversy about the origins of coronavirus. And the WHO team, which was in Wuhan, 
in February after they left China. That was this accusation that came out from some experts that said China was not able to provide all the information experts needed. So I thought Li Keqiang really took the chance of the press conference to try to dismiss some of these allegations and worries from the um, international environment. Yeah, he's almost on the aggressive throughout this, uh, you know, defending China's economic performance, defending China's um, coronavirus um, cooperation with the WHO. Would you say, um, Kinling Maijun, this is almost like an unusually defensive position for the Premier to take at such an event like this? No, actually, I think it was quite, it was quite the purpose of these kind of press conference. It was for mm-hmm. him to send a very clear message to international audiences, addressing them of issues that China knows that cons- they are mostly they're about um, responding to accusations, I would say. So, so that was like, um, I guess for China, an important platform for them to dismiss some allegations and put that Beijing narrative back on the stage. But just to finish up here, guys, I mean, it's obviously a huge event in the Chinese political calendar. Many journalists are following this uh, and we're in the era of the pandemic, of course, so it's it's not like business as usual. My June, how is it as a, as a reporter to follow the NPC? Is it a lot of screen time or on the phone a lot. Tell us how you generally go about it. Uh, the short answer is uh, it's much more difficult and much less fun. I think the fun part in the past was just actually going to the Great Hall of the People, uh, doorstepping the, 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 the delegates, doorstepping the uh, officials and ask them tough questions in the face. And I think it, it was also a little bit, it was also quite a lot of fun to uh, uh, sit at the press a seating area and watch uh, how Xi Jinping inter- interact with other senior leaders because that's not something that we could see on mm. uh, television. Uh, but this year, of course, they limited the size of the, the reporters at the scene. So I only went to uh, the opening ceremony of the CPPCC and was able to only watch the rest of the sessions from TV. Uh, of course, I tried to submit a lot of uh, interview requests through the system, but many of them got rejected and I, I on the average I got uh, like um, 10 rejections per request which is which is something I find really funny yeah yeah sign of the times Kinling how has it been for you so I've I have been covering the whole two sessions this year in my quarantine room because <laughs> yeah I, I actually really miss recording the podcast in the SEMP's Hong Kong office but well, oh. now yeah now I'm here in my hotel room and Actually, it, it made me kind of forgot that I am in quarantine because it, there was so much to do. So I guess it's helpful for me then. All right, guys, that's great. Thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, we'll get you back on soon. Stay safe and take care. That's it for this week's edition of the China Geopolitics Podcast. Don't forget, you'll be seeing the latest news and analysis from the Alaska meeting next week on scmp.com. You can also follow the SCMP Political Economy team on Twitter at SCMP Economy. I am posting all sorts of updates from my new beat across Europe and China. I'm at F Birmingham. Interesting times continue. No matter where you are, we'll be here for you next week. For more podcasts from the South China Morning Post, head to scmp.com, where you can hear more about technology, trade, culture, and society.